This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Cigna. Cigna's 2018 Loneliness Index found that most Americans are lonely. However, those who have regular, meaningful, in-person interactions are less likely to be lonely. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Wednesday, June 13th, the Washington Post convened policymakers, healthcare experts, and advocates who discussed the state of mental health care in the United States, strategies for addressing the country's mental health concerns, and links between technology use and mental well being. In this segment, Democratic Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii and Republican Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina discussed the congressional role in funding mental health initiatives and improving access to quality mental health care for groups such as veterans, Americans living in rural areas, and others who are underserved. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, health policy reporter and author of the Post's Health 202 newsletter, and I'm pleased to be joined this morning by Senators Brian Schatz of Democrat from Hawaii and Senator Tom Tillis, Republican from North Carolina. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, so this morning with, we'll be talking about the government's role in promoting mental health care. Um, and before we get started, I'd like to remind our audience that you can tweet questions to us using the hashtag #PostLive, um, and we'll try to fit some of those in uh, near the end of the discussion. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. Um, over the last couple of years, I've done some writing about mental health care, and I've really seen some of the some of the stigma start to come away. And I know there's been more public discussion about just the problem of mental illness. Um, just to quickly put the problem in perspective, one in five adults in the U.S. experience a mental illness, and one in 25 adults live with a serious mental illness. Um, and yet, just 41 percent of adults with mental illness received professional help in the past year. Um, and of course, last week we had a CDC report uh, talking about the rise in suicides, which is up 30% in the last two decades. And then, of course, um, you know, some celebrity suicides last week as well. Um, can, you, can you share a little bit about your reaction when you hear stats like that, when you hear news like that? Well, I think, the, first of all, thank you for having us and uh, thank you for uh, focusing on this issue. You know, I used to run a social service agency that focused on adults with severe and persistent mental illness, and we talked a lot about stigma. Uh, we are making progress on destigmatization, uh, and we're making progress on understanding that mental health is health, uh, and trying to integrate the way we think about that. But the problem is we have this sort of labyrinthine system that has to catch up with some of our more advanced thinking around mental health. So it's one thing to say we need to destigmatize. It's another thing to say mental health and physical health are, are interconnected. But now we have a system which means reimbursements, billing, processing, auditing, statutes, rules, laws, training, availability of care. All of those are kind of systems issues that, that, that have to flow from the sort of premise that mental health is health. But then you have to get into the details about how systems work, and that's, that's sort of the hard work of, of making uh, mental health available for everybody. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I, I do think the uh, when I was thinking about this uh, conference, I thought about a personal experience I had about 10 years ago when I was diagnosed with an incurable, potentially fatal disease. And I was put on uh, high-dose steroids for several months, and I experienced pharmacologically induced mania. And then after I came off of the steroids, I experienced uh, clinical depression for nearly two months. And um, I, I realized that uh, even I struggled. You know, I was, a, I was a partner at IBM. I was a state legislator. And even I struggled with the idea of recognizing that there was something going on. It was most likely associated with my, uh, the drugs that I needed to take uh, to uh, prevent me from getting more ill. And so it really hits home at a personal level that we have to. I really do believe that we have to make sure that people understand that today's society views this as if it's an illness on par with a physical illness. It is a physiological uh, challenge that, that I happen to have that went away after I lost the drugs. And I, for one, think it was one of the great blessings in my life to really see it from the perspective of somebody who wants to see a doctor but doesn't want to admit they need help, uh, then wants to go through the whole process of finding a qualified uh, professional to help me. And I think those are things that we have to continue. Those who have done it uh, need to be prepared to talk about it. I have some staff say, why on earth would you talk about your personal experience? I said, that's a part of the problem, people not doing that. And recognizing there's a path to getting well for many, not all, but for many. Right. So let's talk a little bit about underserved populations. Who do you, who comes to mind when you kind of worry about which Americans are getting access to health care? I, I worry a lot. I worry a lot about people in the prison population. <clears throat> we, uh, we did uh, what we call Justice Reinvestment Act in North Carolina when I was speaker to try and identify that population that we could possibly release from prison, but not just let them on their own, vector them into various treatment programs. You know, you've got to understand the sources of, of behavioral and mental health. They could be substance abuse, some other uh, physiological driver. So it's really understanding the nature of the mental health challenge and trying to get resources. I worry about the poor population in North Carolina. You know, we're a, we're a state of 10 million people. Half live in the cities, half live in, in the outreaches of North Carolina. So I worry about those who are uh, in the rural areas where I actually think the stigma is even a greater driver and they have a disproportionately lower number of options for treatment. Mm -hmm. So one thing I, I, I think uh, provides a real opportunity is telehealth uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, this is bipartisan, uh, and that's a big deal when it comes to health care. We, we're trying to find common ground, and we were able to enact legislation that did a couple of things. First, Medicare now reimburses uh, for telehealth within ACOs and within certain contexts. Uh, yesterday, uh, or maybe this morning, the VA is implementing a law that allows uh, VA doctors to work across a state line as it relates to telehealth. Now, telehealth provides access to people, especially in rural areas. But when it comes to mental health treatment, there are a lot of things that you can do telephonically, you know, through a phone um, to decrease the discomfort that individuals feel in accessing care. Um, I think about the case management that we used to do in Hawaii, where half of the time we were actually trying to physically locate the, the consumers. Um, and then we were trying to do representative payee services, in other words, trying to uh, manage the individual's money. A lot of that can be done uh, with a smartphone nowadays. So we can articulate a kind of new social safety net using tech, um, but it also helps with medication management. But uh, in the end,
people want to have a relationship with their clinician, once that uh, clinical relationship is established, once that trust is established, using a phone is not a bad way to uh, increase the quality and access and, and actually decrease the cost. Um, so what kind of levers do you think Congress should be pulling here? Because there's sort of many layers of reasons why people aren't getting the mental health care that they need. There's the stigma about seeking care. There's the uninsured rate, which is still relatively high in the U.S. Um, and of course, lots of fights in Congress about kind of what to do about that. But it, what, could you each of you kind of describe what you would like to see you and, you know, you and your colleagues do legislatively to, to take on this problem? Well, you know, I, um, I, I think what we have to do is look at the, the, uh, the, the broader framework that we should go about solving the problems or the gaps in the system. And if you do that, you have to take a look at city, county, state, federal engagement. Um, I, for one, think that we should, at the federal level, provide some incentive for the states to take a look at their scope of practice laws. Uh, you made me think about it when you were talking about telemedicine. The, the other issue that we have in the rural areas is you simply have areas that do not have access to, say, the highest certified practitioner. So then you've got to get into scope of practice. I think like practice. 60% of Americans in rural areas live in these like shortage Right, and, and so, you know, you, when I was Speaker of the House, when I first came into the legislature, I thought the healthcare, you know, all the healthcare providers were just one big happy family until I learned about scope of practice. And then I realized they back up and each one of them wants to expand their scope, but, but they think it's crazy talk to let some other colleague in a different area of the field. We've got to look at that whole and see how we plug the gap. Of course, if you could have a, a psychiatrist in the outreaches of Western North Carolina, that would probably be ideal because of the education, the, the scope of supervision that they have. But we've got to take a look at how states are actually dealing with their scope of practice laws, how they're actually allowing us to go over state lines uh, beyond just the, the federal purview like we're trying to do with the VA and sit down and really find the gaps and start filling them in a systematic way. And the federal government should play some role in encouraging the state and local entities uh, to really help us come up with solutions that can become models that other states can follow. Senator Schatz, do you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. I was thinking about when I was in the legislature and I was talking to a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist who didn't want us to expand the scope of practice for psychologists, and I said, great, you want to work in Kau as a psychiatrist? And they said, no, thank you. I said, well, then we're going to take wh whoever is willing to provide that kind of care. So Tom makes a really good point. I just want to thank Tom for his courage in talking about his personal experience. I think, frankly, that's one of the most important things that public leaders can do in talking about mental illness. I've, I've, been talk, I've been noticing you know, NBA players talking about their anxiety. I've been noticing uh, stars talking about the uh, difficulty that they've had with mental illness. And I think all of that lends itself towards people accessing care and us expecting a system that actually takes care of people. Uh, on what we should do next, I, I, I'm just totally evangelical about tele telehealth. It is one of the um, bright bipartisan spots when it comes to health care. And even though we're not arguing about it, it might be the most important thing that we're doing when it comes to improving our system of health care. And one final thought, uh, harm reduction as it, as it relates uh, to uh, drug abuse and drug use. Um, we have an inverse correlation uh, uh, between the availability of medical marijuana uh, and opioid use. Now, I'm not a clinician, and I'm not prepared to 
to uh, assert that uh, marijuana is medicine. I am just saying that there is a correlation which is inverse, which is where medical marijuana is available. You have fewer people using opioids and fewer people dying of opioids. And so what we have right now is this kind of co-occurring mental health and substance abuse problem. And we have to look, uh, frankly, outside of the box when it comes to drug policy, uh, criminal justice uh, uh, reform and criminal justice mm -hmm. policy. So we have to, you know, engage in a kind of straightforward bipartisan discussion about what's going to solve this problem. And frankly, I, I'm the son of a principal investigator, son of a, a, a doctor, and I was pretty skeptical about marijuana as medicine. I continue to be skeptical about marijuana as medicine, but I'm very skeptical about the idea that we prescribe opioids to the extent that we do. And uh, whatever works to reduce the incidence of death, uh, uh, accidental or suicidal, um, we should pursue as aggressively as we can. I want to follow. Oh, sorry. Yeah, if, if I can touch on just uh, one other piece. First, I agree. And you know, I've never really understood the, the a society that thinks it's all right to prescribe an opioid, a product of opioids, uh, but have some problem with even considering the possibility of prescribing something that's derived from cannabinoid. Uh, so on the medical, it, to me, it's the, the thing that produces the greatest efficacy for the least risk to the patient. So I think that's something we have to keep talking about, not the wild, wild west that you see in some states, but treat it on par with, with other uh, treatment options. But there is one other thing that I think we also have to do, and better educate, with my own personal experience, better educate caregivers and family members. I remember when I was going through this, and, and I, I did share it with some of my family members what I was dealing with, you know, they have these platitude sort of solutions like go fishing or go surfing. I, I, I wake surf. I, I don't surf on the big waves. They scare me. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, just do that. Or, you know, if you, you know somebody, uh, go shopping. And, and that really, it, it's the, you have the same challenge for dealing with people with Alzheimer's and dementia. Uh, we, we need to better educate the population on how they can help get people who are suffering with mental illness to someone who can help them. And there's a lot to be done on the caregiver side. I wanted to go back real quickly to the telehealth thing. I want to talk more about opioids, but, but can you explain a little bit more why you think telehealth, uh, telemedicine pr has so much promise in this area? Because as you probably know, providers have been pretty slow to adapt to this, um, discouragingly so. Well, I think they are going to adapt to it. And some of that was the economics of Medicare not reimbursing, right? So if, say, 20 to 40% of your payer mix won't reimburse for telehealth services, it's really hard to have parallel systems, one that's sort of Medicare-oriented and one that is VA and private pay and every, everything else. So um, this Medicare change will, I think, uh, change the view of private hospital systems, uh, doctors groups, and others. Uh, listen, you know, some of these docs have been trained in a certain way of delivering services, and that, that's part of the issue. But in the long run, look, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you told uh, a patient uh, that they were going to interact with their clinician via a laptop or a smartphone, they would have been insulted and irritated. Now, if they can't interact with their clinician, they'll be insulted, they'll be and, insulted irritated. and irritated. <laughs> and and that is, that's an absolute transformation in the way that we all expect to be delivered services. And you know, from Orrin Hatch and John Thune and Tom Tillis to, to myself and Ben Cardin and Mark Warner and others, I mean, we're, we're moving as aggressively as we can because this is the one space where everyone seems to agree we're going to increase the availability and the quality and decrease the cost. 
And as we fight like cats and dogs over the ACA and everything else, this is a space where we can really institute some significant changes. But if you also, I think the other thing that's caught up is that we're not any longer talking about technology that's like a Skype experience. I was just at a Biden Healthcare, one of the largest healthcare providers in North Carolina visiting three weeks ago, and they've just stood up a new system that really makes you feel like you're interacting with a doctor, you're not just a head on a screen. So the user experience, the patient experience is vastly different than 10 years ago. And I think that it's time for it to become ubiquitous and I also think it's time to measure reimbursement on the basis of the outcome, not the manner in which the care was provided. Um, so let's talk about just briefly something that's not so bipartisan. I don't want this to devolve into a discussion about Medicaid expansion and all of that. However, I do want to ask you, Senator Tillis, Medicaid is the, is the single largest payer of behavioral health services in the U.S. So how do you respond to the arguments that rolling back expansion would hurt people's coverage and therefore their access to, to mental health services. Well, I, you know, I, in uh, North Carolina, as Speaker, we didn't expand Medicaid under Obamacare. And, and the reason that we didn't is I wasn't quite sure what Congress was going to offer the states at some point in the future. Because, you know, again, when, when measures get passed that are purely on partisan lines, then they're always subject to some kind of change going forward. So I told my team that if we wanted to look at populations we needed to expand Medicaid, then let's do it under the current reimbursement rules so that we don't suddenly create a system that could be a financial risk should the rules change. And they almost changed last year. Um, but what we also did is start working on expansion of accountable care organizations. Now we've got some of the best uh, examples of capitated models that are working that the healthcare providers like. We went through a lot of challenges to get them going to where we're driving down the cost of care and freeing up those resources to expand services. So at, at, at some point we have to recognize there's a lot of inefficiencies in the Medicaid system that should be driven out so that we're getting better quality care, more access uh, to the population. And I think that you know, right now it's just become a, an either or. I think there's something in the middle that would probably address the fundamental concerns of all, the, all but be people on either side of the aisle that just want a political win that there's a way to do it to where you can expand care, but you do it and bend the curve. When I came in as speaker, I had a $750 million shortfall in the year uh, that had to actually be paid for with next year's dollars. And we could not afford to sustain that because it was putting at risk. When you have a Medicaid shortfall, you've been in the legislature, you know how this works. You usually cut provider rates. And then that actually causes a number of issues that are, at the end of the day, harm the patient. So you got to be, you got to go in with your eyes wide open if you're going to expand it and make sure it's sustainable. Of course, we also have the private coverage, and most Americans are covered by employer-sponsored plans. And we had the mental health parity law, uh, which they, was passed, I think, in 2008 or 2009, but then the ACA strengthened. Um, but there's been quite a lot of reporting on how implementation has been of that law has been pretty slow among insurers. Of course, the law requires them to cover mental health services sort of on par with other health services. Um, and I believe the Labor Secretary has asked Congress on numerous occasions for more authority to kind of crack down on these insurers to, to implement the law and, um, and put its provisions in place. Have, are you aware of that? Um, do you have any thoughts about how we could kind of speed up um, this provision of mental health services among private plans? 
Well, part of it is just the availability of, of clinicians. You know, we were talking about psychologists and psychiatrists. I, I, I'm thinking of East Hawaii, Hilo Town. Our perennial challenge with the agency that I ran was we just couldn't get a psychiatric nurse who, uh, who could last in uh, on the Big Island. And uh, it was an incredible challenge. So we, you know, in the state of Hawaii, we have the Prepaid Health Care Act, which is Actually, it's something we should do nationally. You'll hate it, Tom. But uh, uh, <laughs> but anyone who works 20 hours is is, uh, is uh, gets health care, and it's clean. Uh, the business community likes it, and everything is more expensive in Hawaii except for health care. Um, even on the private side, even on the Blue Cross Blue Shield side, it is the cleanest way to do it. It's just a, it is a mandate. It's you work 20 hours, you get health care, and um, and we have very aggressive parity laws, a democratic legislature and a, a, a strong advocacy community. But the challenge in, in terms of parity, in my view, is not purely at the reimbursement side and the way the insurance uh, companies operate, but it's just the availability of clinicians, which is why I'm evangelical about uh, telehealth, I'll say it again, but also uh, we need to do more training and to be adults about scope of practice. I came in, as I just mentioned, a doctor's son, you know, kind of a hard-nosed uh, guy about you know, doctors versus, um, versus nurses and psychiatrists versus psychologists. And over time, I just realized that that is a theoretical exercise when nobody is willing to care for people in, in rural communities. And so it's about getting providers out there. Um, sure, you'd always rather have a more well-trained individual um, wherever you can, but you just have to deploy people who can, who can provide care wherever they can. Senator Tillis, do you have any thoughts on mental health parity, or is that something you've I heard? agree with him. I hate the one option, but everything else he said, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, I think what it comes down, you know, this is really where I think reasonable people need to sit down and say, instead of this either or, I mean, I think we all ultimately want everyone to have broad access to health care. But we have to get to the sustainability question, and it has to be the whole of government. It can't just be a federal solution. As a state legislator, I think we can play a role. A lot of our urban uh, leaders would play a different role than our rural leaders. But if we really want to solve this and make it less of a political lightning rod on how you solve it and sustain it, we have to have people sit down and even recognize what may work for Hawaii uh, with a very different industrial uh, and uh, business mix. Uh, may not work in North Carolina. So we start looking at how we come up with enablers from the federal government that let the states execute these with the ultimate goal of everybody having access to whatever health care service they need. If they can pay for it through a private employer, great. If they can't, then the safety net exists to help the others. Now, Congress did pass some mental health reforms, I think a year and a half ago, as part of the 21st Century Cures Act, um, which was kind of widely seen as like doing some, making some modest reforms, but nothing very sweeping. Do you think there's any energy in Congress to kind of have another go at this? Uh, is there an obligation on lawmakers to act? My instinct is that where this will fly is in the context of our continuing efforts to address the opioid uh, crisis. Um, and, and I think there continues to be an appetite, frankly, because of the bipartisan leadership of, of, of people like Tom who, who are willing to talk about mental health as health. I just want to add one little thing, which is that um, we really have to talk about the homeless population. We have to talk about meeting people's basic needs because, you know, you, you have really no prospect of getting better uh, if you're sleeping on the street. And so we just have to prioritize housing people and meeting their most basic needs um, because it's morally correct, but also because it's clinically indicated. We know that now. And we spend so much money servicing people's problems 
Um, and it would be literally cheaper to put them in a hotel and let them get some rest and let them get clean and be safe um, than to either require that they get clean before they get shelter, which is you know, counterintuitive. But that is the way most homeless shelters work. That is the way our uh, 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 social service uh, community is forced to work. So we really have to think about housing first. But more generally, we have to understand these are people. And what would you do if one of your friends or family members was was mentally ill, probably physically sick, and out on the street, you would prioritize housing, food, being safe. And we don't do that in the social service community. We, we prioritize servicing the illness at the back end. And people have very little chance of getting better um, if they're in danger or deeply physically uncomfortable. One of the, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I just, I think uh, actually Senator Frank and I were, uh, Frank and I were working on uh, this uh, before he left the Senate, and we're trying to pick it up with other members to try and take a look at, again, steps. Nothing really big happens here, and when it does, it's usually not good. But there's a number of steps that we can uh, take. I think we have to look at the prison population and, uh, and the veterans population. If you take a look at, uh, I mean, if, even if you take a look at uh, traumatic brain in this, uh, injury or post-traumatic stress, so those are other mental health challenges that we need to work on, particularly for our nation's veterans. So I think if we start with these very focused, uh, very narrow populations, then they can also be adapted to the remaining population. That's the way that you actually get things done in Congress, where you can scope it in on a population where there's virtually no daylight between Democrats and Republicans, say, on the veterans population. There's a large number of people like me who are prepared to talk about uh, criminal justice reform and, and targeting the prison population the way that we did in North Carolina. Those are the kind of positive steps I think we can take and look to producing an outcome versus trying to hit a ball out of the park. Well, I think you make a really good point with uh, on on you know how you can achieve more bipartisanship on sort of smaller issues, but uh, or smaller populations. But what's sort of unique about our system in the U.S., of course, is that we have such a complicated health coverage system, unlike many other countries, and this makes it really hard to achieve any kind of consensus on how to expand care because we have. Medicare, Medicaid, private coverage. Are there any big levers that Congress can pull to 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 really expand mental health care access, or is this just this necessarily have to be sort of an incremental thing because of the way our system is set up? I think this does have to be incremental, but I think one of the beauties of being in the United States Senate is even the small things are actually enormous. Mm -hmm. um, there's a saying in Hawaii: you have to go slow to go fast. Uh, and I think that we have to go slow to go fast. We have to uh, not try to hit uh, home runs. Uh, you can score a lot of runs uh, with a lot of singles and doubles. And, 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 and again, if you're talking about federal legislation, you can make an enormous difference uh, kind of below the radar in the, in the areas where we're not in disagreement. Any final thoughts, Senator Tillis? If I answered, I'd be over time. <laughs> well, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. And now I'd like to welcome my colleague, Amy Ellis Nutt, to the stage. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.